So, and today we're going to talk about humility, taking a break from Hebrews. So, um, let's just get into this. First question I'm asking this morning uh, is, what is meek? By the way, I forgot to mention, the title of the sermon is The Most Humble Man on the Face of the Earth. And I will let you know today who that is. And they might even be in this room. So, just want to make sure you knew that. But my first question is that I'm asking is, what is meek? And uh, you know that idea comes from the Beatitudes uh, in the New Testament, from the Sermon on the Mount. The third Beatitude talks about that. Matthew 5.5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, what is meek? What does that mean? Well, the word's used only three other times in the New Testament. Once in Matthew 25, or 21, 5, where, uh, the gospel writer, uh, takes the, uh, incident where Matthew, where Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and he ties that to the prophecy, to a prophecy from Zechariah. Matthew 21, 5, say to the, the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The word, Translated humble is that same Greek word that's translated meek in Matthew 5. It's also used in 1 Peter 3, 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a, quiet, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The word gentle is that same Greek word. And then finally, you know, I think what is a probably very familiar verse, especially to a lot of us here, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Again, the word gentle there is that same Greek word translated meek in Matthew 5. <clears throat> the Greek word is paris, but we should note that that's not the typical word that's used to translate into a word like humble in the New Testament. The more typical word is the Greek word tapinos, and it turns out that the word that's translated lowly in Matthew uh, eleven twenty nine is that Greek word, tapinos. So you have gentle and lowly, paris and tapinos. So back to the question, what is meek? Well, it certainly must mean a, some combination of humble and gentle and lowly. And it certainly describes the character of Christ. But in the Beatitudes, Jesus uses it to describe the kind of person who is blessed. So we are going to talk about humility today, and about humility, C.S. Lewis said this, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. first step is to realize that you are proud. And I wanted to illustrate humility, or at least I think might be an illustration of humility. Let's put up picture number one there, if you would. Well, that's a grave. And it happens to be the grave of John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland. Now, there is a plaque there, um, but that plaque wasn't put there until hundreds of years later. John Calvin did not want his grave marked because he didn't want people to to come to that grave and see it as something kind of special, this special, uh, important man. And he certainly was important, important to the church, important to the understanding of the theology of the scriptures. But he didn't want to appear or have people call, uh, consider him something more than he was. So uh, I think that's an illustration of humility. 
But I also want to give you an illustration of something a little different. Let's put up picture number two there. That is a mausoleum. In fact, it's a mausoleum in Geneva, Switzerland, and I'm told you can see it across Lake Geneva from the cemetery that John Calvin is buried in. The mausoleum is of Charles de Este Guelph, Duke of Brunswick. He was a linguist, he was a musician and a horseman, and he was eccentric and wealthy. He died in 1873, and he, in his will, promised to donate all of his money to the, or nearly all of his money to the city of Geneva to use to build buildings and to help with infrastructure and to improve the city. He said he had one condition, though. He said, you can have all that money if you build me this mausoleum so that everybody can see this and everybody would know who I am. Contrast with the grave of John Calvin, it's a little bit different, and I would suggest that this is an illustration of not humility. So we're going to look today at how the Bible describes humility, first in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, and then we'll wrap up by talking a little bit about what it means to live humbly. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, your life in us because of Jesus Christ. And we know, Lord, that your word places a high value on being humble. And I pray today, Father, that you'd open up our hearts today to see, to get an idea of what that really means so that we might follow you in that as we seek to follow you in all things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, how the Bible describes humility. First in the Old Testament. There is a family of Hebrew words in the Old Testament that's used to describe humility. The most basic root Hebrew word of that family is anah. The fundamental meaning is to crouch or to bow down or to bend low. Most of the forms of the word have a physical image to them, like being forced to made low or to be afflicted or to be bowed. There are a couple of other Hebrew words that are sometimes translated humble that tend to have a little more of a heart sense. One word, nathal, means to fall down, and it means to submit to another. When Joseph's brothers came before him uh, in Egypt, thinking that he was the second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt, they fell before him. They nafal before him. And even though there is a physical image here, it does speak a little bit more to the concept of the heart and of being humble. The other Hebrew word is kanah, which means to be humbled or to submit. The word was used when King Josiah, king of Judah, had the scroll of the law read to him, and he realized that he and the people of Judah were, were, Judah were sinning by, not, or by following other gods and by worshiping idols. Josiah repented before God. And Huldah, the prophetess, speaking God's word, said to Josiah in 2 Kings 22.19, Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and have wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Much of the Old Testament outlook on humility shows that a person will either humble himself before God or be humbled by God. We see this in the case of Uzziah, another king of Judah. Second Chronicles 
He set himself to seek God in the, in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Seeking the Lord, as Uzziah did, is an expression of humility before God. And God gave Uzziah success, a great deal of success. And he sought God, and God blessed him, and Uzziah became powerful. But that did not last. Second Chronicles again, 26, 16. But when he was strong, speaking of Uzziah, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah was a king. He was not a priest. Burning incense in the temple was not part of what he should do. <coughs> Humility before God is tied to repentance. In the Old Testament, we already spoke of Josiah repenting, but Hezekiah, another king of Judah, repented. Second Chronicles thirty-two twenty-four through twenty-six. Have we ever spent so much time in Second Chronicles before? I don't know. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return; that is, he didn't repent. According to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. In spite of the physical image of the words that are translated humility in the Old Testament, humility is a heart issue. And a humble heart before God will result in actions, but there is also a false humility. The Jews, when they were in revolt against God, tried to carry out God-ordained rituals and fasts. But God saw through it. Isaiah 58, 3-7. The people are complaining to God, and they say this, Why have we fasted, and you see it not? We have, why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? God replies, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the, see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own, fle- your own flesh or not hide yourself from your brothers? <clears throat> the people were rebelling against God, but they were trying to carry out the rituals that God ordained, and he knew their heart, and the very fact that they were fasting didn't make them humble. In fact, God says, no, you're proud. But this is what humility is. And a good relationship with God in the Old Testament certainly requires humility. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
Overall, humility in the Old Testament can be thought of in two closely related ways. First, we've already mentioned that you will be humbled, willing or not. And second, humbling yourself before God is the recognition that God is sovereign in your life while exercising dependence on him and acting out your humility by serving others. Some people call that faith. We turn to the New Testament, and as in the Old Testament, the New Testament has a family of words that are translated humility and describe the concept of humility. The basic word in Greek that we've already said is tapinos, meaning to cause to be low or to be humble. Other words in the family have meanings that range from lowly to undistinguished to even modesty. There's one other word that's sometimes translated humble, not in that family, but it has the meaning of small or insignificant. The Greek word is micros. John the Baptist used that word when he said in John 3.30, he, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. In the New Testament, the idea of humility or being humble is not imaged so much by a physical idea like it is in the Old Testament, but is more related to the condition of the heart and of the mind, especially as it relates to others. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Of course, the best example of humility and of being humble is Jesus. He expresses humility in the New Testament in many ways. There's a couple that I want to highlight. First, Jesus' example of humility is in his relationship with the Father while he was on earth. Now, Jesus was fully God and fully human. He was not somehow less than God while he was on earth. Jesus did not lose his power as God, yet Jesus submitted himself to the Father willfully, and at times even limiting his knowledge and his power. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all Almighty God. They exist in three persons and are one God. Jesus is God, and so when God speaks, it is Jesus who is speaking. When God acts, it is Jesus who acts. When God created the universe, it was Jesus who was creating. And when God saved, it was Jesus that saves. Keeping that in mind, here's one thing that the Almighty God said, not in the New Testament, but in Isaiah, speaking to the Jews through the prophet Isaiah 43, 10 through 13. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, and when there is no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? It's God describing himself. The Father said that, God the Father said that. But you could also say that Jesus said that. You can also say that when Jesus works, who can turn it back? But when Jesus was on earth, he said this in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. None of the Greek words that are typically translated humble appear in that verse but it clearly demonstrates that Jesus was in full submission to the Father. Jesus chose to be in a place of humility before God, before the Father. 
Another way Jesus' humility is expressed is in what he did. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 presses the example of Christ as our model for humility. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I hope you can see that there's a connection between being humble before God and doing his will. The principle expressed in the Old Testament that God will humble those who do not humble themselves is seen in the New Testament. No surprise there. And it's tied to the notion that there can be even a false humility before God. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Jesus told a parable. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like that other man, like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It is in this passage that we see what false humility before God is like and what being humble before God is like. The Pharisee was proud of his obedience to God. He fasted and he tithed. And he wasn't like those other people, people who were unjust or extortioners or adulterers, because he didn't sin. Well, at least not like they did. The Pharisee was, in fact, not humble. But he was proud, and he was depending on his own righteousness to make him worthy before God, which is really the opposite of being humble. However, it was the tax collector who knew his sin and knew that his sin, as good as he might be, have been otherwise, he might have been a nice guy. He might have had friends. People might have liked him. But he knew that it, he couldn't depend on his own self-righteousness. He had to depend on mercy from God. The principle of being humble before God or being humbled by God is clearly asserted in that parable. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This principle is repeated many times in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. James talks about it. Paul talks about it. Of course, we just saw Christ talked about it. And it actually comes from the Old Testament. Proverbs 3.34 Toward the scorners, he, that is God, will be scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. The measure of true humility is not the acts we perform, it's not how we carry ourselves or any other human measure. It's whether you acknowledge who you are before God and having acknowledged that, receive what God wants to give you, forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ. But I come back, we come back to the question we first asked, what is meek? Well, we said that it describes the kind of person who is blessed. And perhaps if we look at what comes before being blessed for being meek, we can give, have some more understanding. 
Matthew 5, 3 through 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The, The Beatitudes are not just a list of good qualities. They are good qualities. I used to think as a young Christian that uh, I could look at the Beatitudes and I could pick one. And I'd say, I'll be that one. So I wanted to inherit the earth, so I'm going to be meek. It doesn't work like that. Together, all nine of the Beatitudes describe a citizen of God's kingdom. For example, you have the one who is poor in spirit. Spiritual poverty is when a person understands they have no spiritual resources within themselves. They understand they cannot come to God on their own. They realize they lack anything that could deliver them out of their spiritual poverty. Then there's a person, the same person, who is poor in spirit, who mourns. Mourn over what? Well, if you realize your spiritual poverty, you realize that it is your sin that has made you exceedingly poor in spirit. You're like the tax collector who is so sinful and so far away from God that he can only cry out to God, have mercy on me. Everyone is in that position, but it's the one who recognizes it, who cries out to God for mercy. It's the one who recognizes it, who is humble. The person who knows that they are spiritually impoverished, who knows their sin and mourn over it because they can't do anything about it, is the person who is meek. It's the person who is humble before God because they know that only God can raise them out of their spiritual deprivation and turn their mourning into joy, having been forgiven by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. So what does it look like for me and for you? Having believed in Christ as one who is humble before God, what does it look like? Well, the New Testament certainly talks about it. And most of what it says about the subject is directed toward believers among believers. The New Testament says a lot about this. I want to bring out two ideas, though. First of all, Romans 12.3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each one according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. First, think of yourself rightly. It's okay. To have a certain amount of pride in the things you're good at and the things you've accomplished. Given that you acknowledge that God is the source of what you are good at. According to the measure of faith that God has assigned. But don't think too much of yourself. More highly than you should. Keep in mind that you are spiritually destitute. I uh, worked for 36 years for one company. For 21 of those years I worked as a district manager, and I was responsible for anywhere from 20 to 25 stores, and every, responsible for everything that went on in those stores, for hiring and firing and training, and responsible for sales, responsible for managing inventory, and responsible for making all the financial goals that were set for those stores, as well as the financial goals that were set for me. There were some bad years, especially early on, but eventually I got pretty good at my job, and so much so that I was in the top five district managers almost every year. And I won district manager of the year three years in a row, four years out of five, and five overall, but who's counting? I take satisfaction in that. Nancy took satisfaction in the bonus checks I got because of that. 
I took satisfaction in that, but I acknowledged that it was God who was the source of my success. God was the source. God's the one who gave me the wisdom and the thoughts and the ideas. And then another idea found in the New Testament. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy in a manner, excuse me, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That phrase, bearing with one another, can also be translated putting up with one another. That brings some images. Remember those other believers you spend time with, whether it's here or uh, in groups, grace groups or D groups or men's or women's or women's ministry groups or rooted groups. Those other believers are just like you, spiritually poor. They've mourned over their sin, and they are meek, humble, and who, like you, were raised up by Christ. They are worth putting up with. But I suggest that being humble around other believers or even non-believers is not something you need to put a whole lot of effort into. I'm going to be humble today. I don't think you need to do it like that. If you are humble before God, most of the time that humility will help govern your relationships with other believers. The humility before God will help you to be humble among others. The most humble man on the face of the earth. I was talking to Randy Arnold last week, and he asked me what uh, the title of my sermon was going to be today, and I told him, the most humble man on the face of the earth, and he said, oh, you're going to talk about me. Yeah, he didn't really say that, but (laughs) But it sounds good. Numbers 12, 1 and 2. Numbers, man. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Well, Miriam, uh, Moses' brother, and Aaron, Moses, or Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron, Moses' brother, they were jealous of Moses. God had called Moses to lead the Jews, and they didn't like that. They wanted to have a seat at the table of leadership. And actually, I think they wanted Moses off the table. And they used the excuse that Moses was married to a non-Jew, thinking that that should disqualify him, even though God had chosen him. And the Lord heard it. (laughs) I'll let you read in Numbers 12 what the Lord did to Miriam and Aaron. But it's the next verse that I want to point out that I had never seen before, but who can blame me? I mean, who reads Numbers? Numbers 12.3. Now the man Moses is very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. There's your answer. Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth. But here's what's weird about that verse. Most Bible students believe Moses wrote the book of Numbers, along with Genesis, Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. Okay, you get the, you get the thought here. Now, some scholars suggest that maybe Joshua wrote that verse. He put it in Numbers after Moses had died, and it would make sense because Joshua knew Moses. But in any case, that's a very bold statement to make. 
If Moses did write that, or even if Joshua wrote it, how can a person justify that statement? Let's think about Moses' life a little bit. Moses was adopted into Pharaoh's family. He lived in luxury and power. He murdered a man. He was called by, by God from the burning bush. Moses went to Pharaoh, demanded the release of the Jews, and through God's power performed miracles. Moses led the Jews through the Red Sea. Moses prevailed on God not to destroy the Jews when they rebelled. Moses received the Ten Commandments from the very hand of God. Moses reflected the glory of God. And Moses led a stiff-necked and rebellious people to the brink of the Promised Land. So was Moses the most humble man on the face of the earth? Well, consider this. Deuteronomy 34.10 And there has not arisen a prophet in, since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. <clears throat> when does a person become humble? When they encounter someone greater. Moses knew God. Moses knew God face to face. When one encounters God, how can one ever think of oneself, let alone have pride or false humility? When you encounter Almighty God in the person of Christ and you place your faith in Him, how can you think of yourself based on what He's done for you? How can you think there's anything that you have done that makes you righteous or worthy? No, it's God that makes you righteous. There's no place for pride in that. It's God that raises, raises you up from an eternity in hell to his loving side, and it is God who invites you to be part of his family. The more you know God, the more you know Jesus Christ, the more humble you will be. If Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth, it was because he encountered God and he knew God. You see, humility has nothing to do with accomplishments. Nor does it have anything to do with being low or being sad or trying to debase yourself. Humility comes from knowing what Jesus has done for you. And knowing what Jesus has done for you frees you to serve him and to serve others and to do great things for him and not to worry about how you look to people. You don't have to worry if people think well of you or badly of you. God loves you. Andrew Murray said this, True humility comes when before God we see ourselves as nothing, having put aside self, and let God be all. The soul that has done this and can say, I have lost myself in finding you, no longer compares himself with others. It has given up forever any thought of self, self in God's presence. So, how can we live humbly? I'm going to suggest a few things to you, but as we go through the suggestions, I don't want you to think of these as things that you that if you do them all and you do them the right way, that you will automatically become humble as if it's some kind of test or some kind of ritual. I don't want you to think of it that way. I just want you to think of it as some ideas, some ways that maybe you can cultivate humility in your life. First, reflect on the cross. John Owen said, Fill your affections with the cross of Christ that there may be no room for sin. Think about the cross. Think about what Jesus did for you. That'll help you on your way to humility. Second, 1 Peter 5, 6-7. through Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The Greek word casting there means to hurl. So I suggest to you that you hurl your cares on God. Throw them at God. 
Raise them up over your head and throw them. Because God wants you to do that. And if you do that, that's humility. The act of hurling your cares on God is an act of humility because it requires trusting him. Next, study the attributes of God. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfastness, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses, quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. The Lord declared himself to Moses, and Moses, all he could do was bow. As you grow in learning who God is, by definition, you will become humble. And I could even suggest that spend some time meditating on that passage. It'll take you some time learning who God is. And then remember God's grace in your life. First, remember it in terms of salvation, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then second, remember God's grace in your life for what he is making in you. <clears throat> Paul understood this. 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And then, make a practice of one anothering. Romans 12, 9-18 Let love be genuine. Therefore, what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So you read that passage, you'll note that this one anothering thing is directly associated with your cultivating your relationship with God. Humility is fed by how we live with God. And then it finds its expression in how we live with each other. And then read a couple of good books. Actually, I'm going to suggest three to you. The first one is called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Pretty good book. The title says it all, I think. And then another book by C.J. Mahaney also tells it all. The book's titled Humility. And then the third book I would recommend to you, it's my all-time favorite next to the Bible. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And then finally... Consider the aim of humility. Um, I'd like to read a passage out of a book by C.S. Lewis. And yes, I know I quote C.S. Lewis a lot. Just deal with it. The book's called The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters is a fantasy. 
It's a fantasy where Lewis imagines what it would be like to listen in on demons how, and when they talk about how to keep people from God, how to keep people from becoming believers, and then after, if they do, how to keep people from getting closer to God. <clears throat> the fantasy of the book is that the senior demon, by the name of Screwtape, writes letters to his junior demon and his nephew, who is named Wormwood. Wormwood is dealing with a man whom they call the patient, and trying to keep that man from God. And in the letters, since it's being written from the perspective of a demon, um, when they talk about God, they don't say God, they say the enemy. Uh, I'm going to read this passage here. I'm not going to use the enemy. I'm just going to substitute it with, with the word God. But in this passage, Screwtape is advising Wormwood about what God thinks about humility, or what he thinks God thinks about humility. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think not of self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion, of his own talents and character. God wants to bring the patient to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. God wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as his neighbor's talents, or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. He wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. He wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible, but his long-term policy, I fear, to restore them to as a new kind of self-love, a charity and gratitude for all selves, including their own, when they have really learned to love their neighbors as themselves. When it comes to humility, the aim of God is to get us to stop thinking about ourselves and to think about others and to serve others, and to think about him, and to serve him.